Hello everyone and welcome to our monthly podcast entitled Has Economic Growth Momentum Stalled? Today is the 17th of September. My name is Lorna Denny and I'm joined by Nile MacDonald and Asim Kadri. A powerful combination of the Delta variant of COVID-19, supply chain friction and weaker consumer confidence has delivered a blow to growth momentum globally. August was a problematic month for the world's two biggest economies. We've seen weakness in U.S. employment data and some areas of retail sales growth. And China saw slowing factory output and a big shortfall in reported retail sales. And similar patterns have been noted elsewhere. Should we then conclude that the recovery has been derailed or is it simply delayed? We will take a look at the data and the impact on financial markets. Niall, if I could turn to you first and ask you to set the context for us, in particular since those heady days of reopening back in the spring. Good morning, Lorna. Well, late 2020 and then into 2021, markets were really focused on three things. One, the reopening of global economies post the COVID pandemic. Two, the fiscal recovery plans governments were planning to implement to bounce back. And lastly, infrastructure bills, notably in the US, that governments were going to employ as part of their recovery plans. We've talked several times in this podcast about the deep implications that the January runoff in Georgia could have with the Democrats holding the purse strings in the US and having de facto control over the three legislative bodies and their ability to roll out fiscal expansion programs and fund infrastructure. Market participants really began to aggressively price in a transition from these factors into an inflationary environment. So value stocks, that's the likes of consumer goods, financials, all rallied strongly from November and then into Q1. Government bonds and investment grade bonds also produced negative returns sold off as interest rates moved higher. So when interest rates go up, bond prices fall. Lastly, commodities, they continue their strong run as demand for raw materials increased, arguably further exacerbated by the supply chain issues experienced. And even today, we're seeing some ports in China having to shut down just for brief periods due to COVID outbreaks. So altogether, putting a little bit of a pinch on supply chain dynamics in the global economy. Yes, we will come on to that a bit later. But how then did this almost euphoric market mindset then change? Well, from the end of March, two connected themes have played out in markets. One, interest rates came back down and growth stocks rallied strongly, outperforming value. So the global GDP numbers that we've seen were still positive, but they have been reduced and largely for a number of reasons. One, a slow vaccine rollout in some countries, notably the US. Two, the Delta variant and its impact that it's having on slowing down the reopening and also its resilience to vaccines, I think is important to note as well. And lastly, I think the tempering of US budget spending on infrastructure. These are all causing economists to pull back marginally on the growth forecasts. And this is feeding into markets, as I mentioned at the start. This is causing interest rates again to come back down and then continued outperformance of growth stocks versus the more traditional elements of the stock market. Yes, it's been very notable indeed over the summer. Asim, if we look more closely then at this supply chain friction, and by that we mean this difficulty in transporting components around the world. It's created quite a squeeze on the growth recovery. There seems to have been little improvement to report over the course of this year. Yes, that's right. So firstly, you've spoken about how during the last 18 months, global supply chains have encountered significant burdens due to the dramatic shifts in both supply and demand that COVID has caused. Essentially, what we've seen is demand for goods and services outstripping the ability of supply chains to deliver on orders around the world. So some industries have been particularly vulnerable to the disruptions due to the complexity of their supply chains, with the electronic sector, for example, facing numerous difficulties. So for example, last year, semiconductor chips, which are the most crucial component in modern 
modern day electrical gadgets saw an unprecedented global shortage during the pandemic. And that affected everything from phones to cars. So this trend has continued this year with businesses around the world continuing to be affected by the global chip shortage. And as you alluded to, the situation hasn't improved much and the disruptions were exacerbated by the blockage of the Suez Canal by the ever given ship at the end back end of March. So in just six days, the blockage hindered over $60 billion of global trade and caused disruptions across all regions and industries. We've also seen major disruptions to some of the largest ports in China amid COVID restrictions and adverse weather conditions. And this has led to further difficulties in the transport of goods and services around the world in a timely manner. And these shortages in goods and products has led to a steady but clear increase in the price of consumer durables as evidenced global consumer price indices. Yes, indeed. And Niall, we first heard these noises about inflation late last year. The US Federal Reserve and indeed other central banks claim this current bout of inflation is transitory. But headline CPI inflation remains stubbornly above 5% in the US. Any thoughts there? Yes, well, central banks correctly, as you said, Lorna, have argued that inflation effects will be transitory and they're not thinking about hiking rates to combat them. I think recent CPI printed the US surprised to the downside. So possibly we are seeing this emerge. For us, a key metric we look at is the five-year, five-year US inflation swap. So what this is, is the market's pricing of five years inflation in five years time. And at the moment, that's pricing in about 2.3% on average inflation over five years. And this has never really gotten much higher than 25 despite all the noise in the market from market participants that you're hearing. So what I would say is market participants are not worried about inflation. They're more worried about other participants being worried about inflation. That's quite an interesting distinction. Over the summer then, the spread of the Delta variant has knocked confidence in the growth recovery across the world. Looking at the latest infection data from the US, Nile, do we get a sense that the spread is now slowing? I know from speaking to a respiratory consultant and that the Delta variant, quote, is no joke, quote, unquote, and it will rampage through your population like a tornado. There is emerging evidence that the vaccine efficacy declines over time, so booster shots are needed. But there is promising data on hospitalization rates being reduced. I think what the issue is, though, is that vaccine rollouts are beginning to stutter, most notably in the US, where vaccination take is only in the 50% range. While there is promising data and that the measures that are being employed are working, I think until we get higher levels of vaccination to get herd immunity, where there is still the possibility of these market gyrations from COVID spreading. And certainly some resistance to vaccination programmes there. But China moved quickly to contain its own outbreak of the Delta variant, which proved very successful. But the check on growth in China can also be attributed to policy moves, Asim. Yeah, so firstly, as you alluded to, Economic activity in China has slowed quite sharply over July and August across all sub-industries. So whilst there are a few factors that the slowdown can be attributed to, the primary ones, as you alluded to, are the Delta variant outbreak, which led to strict restrictions, and also the private sector regulatory clampdown that policymakers have implemented over recent months. The policy focus has shifted to become more reform-focused rather than growth-focused, and this has been borne out by President Xi calling for China to achieve common prosperity, thereby seeking to narrow the wealth gap and force the largest companies and richest individuals in China to increasingly address social inequality rather than just think about their own interests. So this has resulted in a crackdown across private industries such as technology and also private education. And policymakers have pledged to use a number of levers within these areas in order to curtail the largest companies and achieve their common prosperity objective. Policymakers have also tightened financing conditions for property developers, and this likely had the greatest impact on the weaker short-term data that we've seen recently from a macro perspective. And this deteriorating 
policy macro backdrop has increased expectations that policymakers could increase monetary and fiscal stimulus, either in the form of interest rate cuts or then infrastructure spending. And over recent weeks, policymakers have in fact stepped up financial support for small businesses and also pledged better use of local government bonds to, to support the economy and help them get over this short-term slowdown. Well, that brings us rather neatly onto the stimulus issue then, Niall. The US economy has been promised fast packages of fiscal support by President Biden. How are things looking from the monetary stimulus perspective? And I'm thinking really the Fed's tapering plans in particular there. Yes, the Fed, in fairness, has been quite measured, disciplined and telegraphed their communications on tapering throughout the year. So earlier in the year, when we saw the considerations about tapering, they mentioned in their minutes that they were talking about talking about tapering. The messaging that they provided is more about while they acknowledge positive growth dynamics and the recovery is in track, and they're still slack in the labour market. So we did have a big miss in payrolls in August. But what we believe is when the unemployment payments stop, as they have earlier, in the month. And this is going to force a lot of people back into the workforce. So when we see those numbers being released in October, we're expecting this should give a little bit more ammunition or warrant for the Federal Reserve to begin to announce a taper program. So possibly looking at a November meeting announcement of tapering of asset purchases or potentially into December. But no taper tantrum expected for the bond markets, unlike in 2013. No, I think the Fed, and to my point about they've been quite clear and disciplined in their messaging, they are very mindful of the impact that 2013's taper tantrum had on risk markets and markets in general. So they have been very careful with the wording that they've seen and market participants have moved in stride with them. So no volatile gyrations like akin to what we've seen in 2013. And indeed, we don't believe that there will be a similar episode towards the end of this year or even into early next. Well, the Fed's current communications appear to indicate that the US economy is still trending towards recovery, perhaps just after a summer lull. Yes, US inventories are record low, unemployment is falling, but as I said, they are still mindful of the slack that is in the labour market there. So there is a, a little bit of more work to do in terms of the US labour market. And also, I think, you know, we still haven't seen the impact that these infrastructure or fiscal expansion programmes from the US and also Europe and what they're going to do for job creation and GDP growth. There is a lot of positives there to continue the positive GDP momentum that we've seen throughout 2021. With a bit more policy support, would the same be true of China then, Asim, you feel? We're actually seeing in China, Lorna, is that small and medium-sized export manufacturers are rejecting orders and scaling back production in order to avoid increasing inventory and cash flow problems resulting by the extended shipping times that I mentioned earlier. So at the moment, cash is really being tied up in inventory, which cannot be shipped quickly. So business owners are having to often cancel shipments, are having to cancel in order to avoid shipments being delayed and payments are being deferred. So even though factories are at full capacity and export orders orders are still coming in, manufacturers are having to reduce production. And those cutbacks have been reflected in the latest factory activity data, which is contracted on a month-on-month basis for the first time in almost 18 months. So what we're really seeing is a supply issue, since overseas demand for Chinese goods remains strong, but containers prices have increased due to congestion at ports and also labour shortages. So exporters are really struggling to find available containers for goods, which is a different story to the developed world, where production hasn't yet returned to pre-pandemic levels. So we certainly have hopeful messages for the medium term there. Niall, could I ask you to wrap up our discussion by describing how these expectations feed into our current tactical asset allocation? 
Yeah, sure, Lorna. I think three themes really. We're neutral in terms of global equities, given the strong returns that we've seen year to date, and also indeed from the bottom of the market at the end of March 2020. But we have tilted more towards cyclical and value stocks. So we believe that we are you know, mid-cycle in the GDP expansion, and that these elements of the equity market should benefit from positive GDP growth that we're seeing across the globe. In terms of duration, we're underweight our government bond portfolios because we believe that interest rates should go higher as we get more positive momentum on GDP and also governments having to taper off their asset purchases and gradually increase interest rates. And lastly, in terms of more riskier elements of fixed income, we're moderate overweight on high yield as we believe that there's still a little bit of room to run in terms of that asset class and year to date it has produced quite strong returns for us. That's very helpful. Thank you both very much indeed. Thanks, Lorna. Thanks, Lorna.